Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody, and uh, I hope you're having a, a wonderful summer so far. We could turn down the heat a touch, but, you know, it is what it is. We, we, we are in, in Missouri in summer, so can't complain. We can, <laughs> but it won't do any good. <laughs> All right, well, this week as we continue in Ephesians, Paul starts to, to really define for us what life is supposed to look like as a Christian. What is to be the driving force? What, how are we supposed to act? Who are we supposed to be? And Paul very poetically, very beautifully, and very powerfully describes this in chapters 5 and 6. Oh, was that a runner on first? Who's listening to the game? <laughs> keep, keep me updated. <laughs> so Paul tells us what it's supposed to look like and, and very powerfully delves deep in, into humanity. He doesn't give us a checklist of, hey, you know, do these five things and, and you know, I'll be happy with you. Because Paul, Paul and, and God, and they're just interested in so much more. They, they don't, God doesn't need our forced obedience. God doesn't need us. He wants our hearts. He wants us. And he wants us to be a, a people for his own purposes. He wants us to be a people who long after him who run after him the way he ran after us at the cross. And so as we start chapter 5, I want you to, to, to really keep in mind that, that Paul is speaking about the, the whole person. Because sometimes we just we separate ourselves, you know. Somehow our mistakes are just mistakes, but our successes are who we are, right? We, we like to do that. And, and Paul, he deals with the whole person, the, the good and the bad. We, we, we have sinful flesh, but we have a spirit that's alive. And, and you know, that's going to create some, some friction and, and some conflict within a person. Anybody agree with that? To have sinful flesh and a spirit that's alive is going to create some inner conflict. And so we, we have to learn how to deal with that and, and how to work through it. And so look with me in Ephesians chapter 5, because we're going to look and ask the question today is, who is your mirror? And the way I ask that is because we as human beings, we copy, don't we? We copy. What we consistently put in front of our eyes and in, in front of ourselves, we will be like that. In some way. And God knows this. He kind of wired, wired us for it. And that's why he wants us to keep our eyes on him so that we will copy him. But we have to ask ourselves, what mirror am I looking into to figure out who I am? Who is your mirror? So look with me in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love 
as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Anybody feel like with that, Paul starts up here and finishes down here? Well, there's a reason. Because he's showing us the life we're supposed to be pursuing and what it will look like if we don't. You see, too many times we want to just kind of list out the bad stuff and just, hey, avoid this stuff. Just don't do it. And we don't understand. We can't just not do it. Because we don't live in a vacuum. And we will pursue that which is in front of us consistently. That's where our heart will be. And so one of the things that we've got to learn in the Christian life, okay, this is, this is the first thing that, that Paul tells us now. After he's told us, you know, don't be like the other Gentiles in the futility of their thinking and, and don't do that and that's not how you learn Christ and, and, he, and he establishes the foundation. The first thing he tells us is to be humble and reach higher. Be humble and reach higher. These go together. If we're not humble and we're reaching higher, what are we going to do? We're going to pat ourselves on the back for anything that happens. Okay. If we're humble and we don't reach higher, then we just stay living down here in the depths and, and don't ever experience the goodness of what God wants for us. We don't ever experience that higher life. And, and look, I've known people that do that. They're extremely humble, but I'm like, you know God wants more for you. Like God really does want more. You, it's okay. I realize you lived a life of sin before, but you are forgiven. You don't have to beat yourself up for the rest of your life now. You're forgiven. Pursue righteousness. Pursue the life God has for you because it's better than where you're at. And so we have to be humble and reach higher at the same time. How do we do that? Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God. There's that mirror. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you want the easiest synopsis of the entirety of the Christian life, this is it. This is it right here. Be imitators of God as beloved children. If we can really understand and grasp what he's telling us to do, so much of the Christian life just becomes clear. It's not complex. You know, how many of you have ever, you know, you start reading the Bible and then you hear some, some theological explanation and you're like, I could never do that. It doesn't make sense. This is hard. I, and people do. They're just like, maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I'm not smart enough to understand this. So I'll just rely on the really smart people to tell me what my life should look like. That's not what God wants. What does he want? Be imitators of God as beloved children. Children. 
This is easy enough that it's something children can and will do. So we have to start with that place right there, okay? Because what we focus on, we will get more of, and what we neglect and starve, we will get less of. It's a natural part of life. Now, what did Jesus tell us? He says, if anyone would be my disciple, let him what? Deny himself. So what we've got to starve is self. And he says, let him take up his cross, follow me, imitate him. Learn his ways. Take his yoke upon you. So we have to imitate another after denying ourselves. But this is, is probably a little more gentle way to say it. You know, Jesus talks about carrying crosses and things like that. He just, Paul tells us, says, hey, be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to imitate God as a child imitates a parent that loves them and, and they love the parent. Now, how many of you have seen this in action in your life? What is he saying? You know what? Children automatically imitate their parents, don't they? They don't have to try. It's not a complex. They don't have a formula set before them when they're three years old saying, okay, here's what dad's like. Be like him. What is it? He spends enough time around dad and mom, and he's got the DNA hardwired in him that guess what? It's just going to be there. It's just going to show up because it will be encouraged. It's what's going to be seen. It's what's going to be experienced regularly. Well, we have it hardwired into us when we become a Christian. When we get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to reside within us. And so the DNA, the spiritual DNA is there. And the more time we spend with our loving Heavenly Father, the more we'll be like Him. And He says, you need to do this. This is what we do. And so because we are His children, we are adopted into the family through faith through the gospel of Jesus Christ, imitation then becomes a natural part of the Christian life. We're just to imitate the things of God. And Paul says this repeatedly in his letters. Now, most of the time, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He just took himself out of the mix in Ephesians and just said, you know what, imitate God. <laughs> Maybe he got tired of people complaining to him about it. I don't know. Maybe somebody's like, hey, why would I imitate you and I imitate God? He's like, well, that's what I meant. He told him, anything good you see in me, put, you know, copy that. He's telling us that we need to look and learn the things of God and be intentional in imitating the God who loves, forgives, sustains, and sacrifices for the good of others. When you think of imitating God in ways that are possible, what do you think of? Go ahead, somebody say something. What do you think of? You know, obviously God's not going to ask us to part the Red Sea. That's what he does. So if he wants us to imitate him, what do you think he's asking us to do? Love. Anyone else? Grace. What? Care. Just care. <laughs> I love that. Just care. Because he cared for us. Show mercy. See, we know. You know why we know? Because the Spirit has taught us. We know the basics. We know more than we want to let on. We want, you know, sometimes we want to make it all complex when it's really, it really is that simple. And the reason we want it to be complex, because if it's complex, we kind of get off the hook. It's advanced. It's beyond me. 
No, the stuff of God is found in love and mercy and patience, kindness. Oh, we can all do that. And if we have the Holy Spirit within us, we should be able to do it at a level that is pretty impressive. If we're following the lead of the Spirit, we should be able to do it. And so Paul points us to the place where we can understand how we are to imitate God. It's not in miracles. It's not in manifesting something or speaking something into existence, which is one of the modern-day heresies in the church that's spreading. Okay, if you hear people talking about manifesting, only God can manifest. That's not something we do. That's called witchcraft. We are to imitate God by walking in love with Christ as the supreme example. Listen to what he says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We have the example. He tells us what it'll look like. If you're imitating God, you're going to look like Jesus. You're going to look like Jesus. You're going to love as he loved. And notice he says, live a life of love. Don't you love how encompassing that is? It's not, hey, forgive when you're up to it. Just do what you're able. There's no limiting factor here. He says, live a life of love. Is your life defined by the love of God? Your lifestyle, how you treat others, how you think about others, how you think about yourself. You know, some people are able to give love, but man, they sure will not receive it. They think so, that, that's, they stay humble, but they don't reach higher. And, and so now they think so lowly of themselves that they don't understand how much God loves them and they refuse to love themselves in a healthy way. Not narcissism, not self-absorption, but in a healthy way in which we nourish and take care of ourselves for the glory of God. And so Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Our lives are to be a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And we'll know we're doing it right when love is the result. Isn't that simple? I mean, God did not throw out the, you know, you need to have an advanced degree in, in particle physics to understand this. He says, live a life of love. That is our point of imitation. God is not asking for, and I want you to get this, God is not asking for anything more than what a person living in space and time can do. He is not asking for the miraculous. He is not asking for the impossible. He's not asking for something that is beyond your grasp especially because you have the Holy Spirit in you. He's saying you can and you can all do this. We can all live a life of love. And so this is not a command <clears throat> to imitate God in power, but a command to imitate God in disposition, in attitude. We are to live a life defined by, guided by, and empowered by the love of Christ as displayed in the gospel. Now, I have to say, we, we have to qualify it there. He says, live a life as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. 
1 John tells us, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If we don't start with the gospel, we'll get it wrong. We have to look at the cross in order to understand this love that he's telling us to live in. If we, if we leave the cross out of it, we will twist it and pervert it, and we're going to get into that in a second. That's why Paul goes where he goes with this. But we have to look at this. And so we are to do this as dearly loved children. Now, in a healthy household, and I have to qualify this, in a healthy household, children, there, there's no favoritism. They're all loved. They're not all the same. Amen? How many in here have wondered how, how are they related? Because they're so different from each other. But you know what? You love them all. And you do. And, and then as a parent, as a grandparent, you understand this. Like your love, it, it can't be quantified. You love them all. And that's where he says that we are to do this as dearly loved children in a healthy household. There's not a competition for mom and dad's love because it's given freely and adequately to all. And so the idea of needing to be something to be loved is gone. It shouldn't be there. God isn't telling us to perform to be loved. Now, unfortunately, many people grow up in a house where they do have to perform to be loved. And so they attach that to God. When they hear that God is our Father, they almost shudder. It's like, ugh, ooh, Father, I... Didn't have a good relationship with my dad. That's, that's a bad one. And, and, and I'm not making light of it. I, that happens a lot. A lot of people carry a lot of scars from bad parenting experiences they had growing up. Understand, that's not God. He is the perfect father who loves you unconditionally. And he really does want what's best for you because he created you. He knows what's best for you. And righteousness and holiness is what's best for you. And he wants to give that to you. And so as we imitate God, it should keep us humble. <clears throat> this is the great thing. It will keep us humble. See, as dearly loved children, Jesus described it like this in Matthew 18, 1 through 4. He says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, let's just think about what they asked here. The 12 disciples come up and they're like, okay, Jesus, you got to settle this. Which one of us do you like best? Parents, what would you do if your kids gathered up together and came to you and said, all right, we got to settle this right now? Who's your favorite? You know, I'd probably look at the ringleader and say, well, not you. <laughs> Stirring this stuff up like this. Come on. No, we, we would know in that moment. We're like, okay, I got I to gotta put this down. Something unhealthy is happening right now, and i got to stop this. Well, that's what Jesus does. It says, in calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He says, hey, it... You're looking at it wrong. If you think that this is about you establishing yourself and standing, you don't understand the love of God yet. you got to just receive this 
and live in it like a child does with a parent. You don't worry about whether you're loved. You just live in it. You're secure in it. You don't question it. You run to it. In times of trouble, in times of fear, in times of sickness, what do they do? They run. They go to the parent. I'm in trouble. I'm sick. I'm scared. Something is wrong, and I need you because you're the person that I trust. You're the person that will make it okay. That's who we are to perfect. That's it. And so the posture of our heart, we have to ask ourselves, what is the posture of our heart in following God? Are we trying to establish standing for ourselves? Or have we become like little children who are just happy to be in the family? Being loved and loving others. Is your Christian walk a duty or a privilege? Is it forced or is it joyful? Is God your taskmaster or is he your loving father? And these are questions that we have to answer. Because for too many people, God is their taskmaster. Never happy. People say, well, I can never be good enough to please God. No, God is pleased. You know who's not pleased? Whoever represented him as a taskmaster and told you that you had to earn your love with him. Whoever made you believe that, that's the person, that's a man, that is a person that is unsatisfied. And you know what? We won't be standing before them on judgment day. We will stand before God who loves us. And so, we have to look to Jesus in order to do this. We've got to keep looking to Jesus. This is why I come back to the gospel over and over, because we never outgrow the gospel we never outgrow our need for the cross. It is our true north. Anytime we need anything from God, we've got to start with the cross and say, okay, where does the gospel fit in? Where does faith fit into this? Every time we do, everything we do is to be done as a child who is safe and secure with his or her father and is living out the love that has been received and modeled at the cross. That is our example. And so our lives then are to be offered to the Father as Jesus offered his life. Others are to benefit from our lives just as we benefited from the life of Jesus. You see, it gets very clear suddenly when we just look and say we're to imitate God as dearly loved children and live a life of love that looks like Jesus. Okay, so God's not asking any of us to be crucified for another's sins because only he could do that. But he is asking us to love others and serve them the way Jesus did. He is asking us to share the good news with them the way Jesus did. He is asking us to pray for them the way Jesus did. He is asking us to love them when they seem unlovable as Jesus did. Now, Jesus, like I said before, he never affirmed anybody in their sin, but he did love them despite it, and they had to make a choice whether to accept his love or reject it. Well, can we love people at a level where it's up to them to accept it or reject it? Yeah, we can do that. That's not impossible. It's not God asking us to do something crazy. It'll seem crazy in this world, but it's exactly what Jesus did. 
That is the blueprint for a successful Christian life. You have it right there in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Now, Paul takes a hard turn here. Because if we're going to live a life of love, we have to understand love properly. Or it can become self-serving, and we can dip back into that feudal mind and that sensuality that he talked about in Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, and things can become self-serving so very quickly that sensuality starts to become our God. And any time a person lives for sensuality, it ultimately leads to one place. It always does. And when a person is on this sliding scale, they may not be there yet. Stay there long enough, you will be. Okay, this, this is the, the slippery slope. People don't like slippery slope arguments. But you know what? This isn't a slippery slope. This is an escalator that's going down. And if you're standing on it, it's going to take you there. Okay, it is going to take you there. And so we have to learn, not only are we copying God, but we've got to learn to see the darkness for what it is. We have to see and recognize those things that will keep us from imitating Jesus. Those things that, that are darkness in any age, in any place, in any time. There are things that are just simply sinful, they're darkness, and they destroy people, and that's all there is to it. In no age or time is it acceptable. And so in verse 3 he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness now, don't get just caught in that one place of sexual immorality and forget the rest of it here because he's listing out a mindset. <clears throat> the sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. All of this has to do with where is our orientation as a person. What are we looking at? What are we copying? What are we consuming? Is it leading us closer to God or away from God? Because this is, this kind of immorality, this covetousness, this impurity is the inevitable outcome of a life lived in sensuality. Now what does God demand? He has already said he demands a life of love. What is love? Understood properly, love is sacrificial. Love is a concern for the other person that you are willing to look for their good even at your own harm. That's biblical love. Biblical love is a concern for the other person that is given freely with no expectation of return, with no need to understand or be understood, and no need to enjoy the process along the way. It is simply given because it is the right thing to do and reflects the nature of God. Love is a force all on its own. And if he has told us to live a life of love that is rooted in the gospel, then sensuality is out of the picture. Because we can't do both. Because sensuality leads to a life of lust and a loss of feeling. He's already said that they have a hardness of heart and they become calloused. Well, love is what? It's, it's a sensitivity to the needs of others. 
It's an increased sensitivity to the well-being and needs of other people where sensuality loses that sensitivity and becomes calloused and lost in itself. And that's why he says, you cannot, he says, don't even let this be named. Don't, don't go down this path because it reveals that you are following a futile mind, a hardened heart, a darkened understanding, and a life of sensuality. And so he says, there, there can't even be a hint of this. The, the NIV translates, let there not be even a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or covetousness. And so, Paul's already said that the feudal mind leads to a hardened heart and callous soul. They become unfeeling and, and undiscerning. And what should bother them no longer does. Now, this is important. Because if you're leading a life of love, you are sensitive to the needs of others. You are sensitive to the commands of God. The things that bother us are good things, and they should bother us. If we're walking with God, we should be bothered by the sins of the world. Amen? Now, that doesn't mean we go on a rampage against them, but, I mean, we, just, we look at darkness, and we see it for darkness, and we're like, this is horrible. This is evil. I want nothing to do with it. But a life lived in sensuality loses that sensitivity and becomes calloused to the point that sin no longer feels like sin, but feels normal. And this is a horrible place for God's people to be. And God's people can be there. It's called what Paul already said. Don't quench the spirit. That's what he's talking about. We can ignore the spirit of God for so long that we just forget that he's there. We lose touch with his voice. In Jeremiah 6.15, here's what Jeremiah, God said through Jeremiah to the people of Israel, the Judah. He says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. What's he saying? Didn't even bother. Things that, that should, they, they didn't even know how to blush. They weren't even embarrassed. You know, the blushing is when there's some embarrassment and we, you know, we kind of think twice about it and we're, we're somewhat ashamed or we kind of want to hide from it. He's like, they didn't even blush. You know, we can blush and still get through. They didn't even blush. They didn't care anymore about righteousness. And so what Paul is doing here is not setting up, and please get this, he's not setting up an advanced class of sins that are worse than the others. Because there are times that people are, they're like, oh, well, I, I don't do that, so I must be okay. That's not what he's doing. He is showing us that the fruit of a futile mind is out of place in the life of a Christian. That we, we cannot pursue, we can't be an imitator of God and live a life of love, of sacrificial love, and live a life of sensuality at the same time. It can't happen. It's one or the other. And that's where he says, make sure that this just isn't even a part of your life. Understand that, because he gets into covetousness too, okay? He gets into impurity, he gets into idolatry. There are things, and what he's saying is don't let anything become more important to you than your relationship with God, than obedience to him. When I say your relationship with God, I don't mean just the fact, oh yeah, God accepts me and he affirms me and I'm going to do whatever I want. What I'm saying is your relationship with God that is healthy, in which you honor him, you walk with him. You glorify him with your life. That is what needs to be most important. 
And so how does this happen in the life of a Christian? How do, how do they start down this path? If they have the Holy Spirit, how do they quench the Spirit and get to a point where they can no longer even blush for sin? How does this happen in a Christian's life? Because it does, but you know what? It doesn't happen overnight. There was a time where the Holy Spirit convicted. There was a time where it felt wrong, and then over time, feeling is lost, callousness sets in, and suddenly we're you know, over here somewhere going, I don't care. Literally not bothered by it. How does that happen? Paul tells us. Okay, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. These three things right here are hallmarks of how Satan gets us to compromise. Okay, hallmark, this is it. He's telling us how this happens. Remember, Paul said we are to speak truth in love to one another. Why? Because it is a safeguard from the darkness that is all around us. Because it keeps us mindful of the truth, mindful of God's grace, mindful of God's love. It keeps us centered. What we speak about matters. And it's not just don't use your words to be mean. What we allow to happen with our words reveals where our heart is. But they also have more of an effect in directing people and even ourselves than we realize. Studies have been done, okay? I know that's kind of a loaded phrase, but what is the number one way that you can get a person to compromise on a moral issue? How can you convince them that it's okay? Anyone know? Humor. Humor. Make it a joke, and for some reason we'll accept it. And you know what? I've seen this. I have watched this. You, you can ask, yeah, I've been since college. I've been like, huh, I see it. And I watch our culture. And I see what, what one generation thinks is funny, the next will embrace as normal. And you know what? Here's how it works. Studies have been done to prove this. I, I've really looked into it, okay? When we make it a joke and we laugh about it, it disarms that part of the brain that says, hey, this is wrong. You shouldn't do, this is bad. And if we make it a joke, it just kind of goes around that and we laugh. And then when we laugh, the brain relaxes and says, oh, okay, I guess it's not, a, I guess it's not bad. We're laughing. We feel good. So let's just keep going. Let's just keep doing this. And I'm going to give you an example. I don't mean to upset anybody with this, but uh, it's an example that I think everybody in here can understand. Okay? Going back to the late 1970s through the 1980s, homosexual characters in movies were always what? Comedic characters. There was always one. They were a comedic character. And we laughed. Oh, look at them. And we laughed. And get, look where we are now. See, they bypassed the conscience that God has given us using humor. They disarmed the conscience of a nation using humor. Today, there is a huge outcry of the loss of masculinity and men being passive 
right? We see it. Think back to the mid-90s, early 2000s. Who were all the comedic characters? The overweight, lazy bums that were still at home? In movies? You, you can think of them. Think of the movies and, and these men that were worthless and they were the main characters. See, this is why Paul says, let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, because he knows. He's saying, if we make a joke about things that matter, they won't matter anymore. We have to be serious about the right things. Now, I'm not, we cannot turn into those people that are like, somebody's having fun somewhere and I've got to stop it. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay, I am not talking about that legalistic thing where we are angry at the world, where we love God so much we're mad. You know, That's not what I'm talking about. We all know what I mean here. Where we joke about things that are sacred. Don't do it. There are things that should be sacred. And you know what? The marriage relationship between a husband and his wife and their physical relationship, that is sacred. And it should be honored as such. You know what? Hebrews says that. It says, let the marriage bed be honored by all. That means what? No crude joking. Don't joke about this. Honor it. Hold it in esteem as something that is worthy to be honored and revered. Not shamed either. Christians have done the other side of that too, and we've been ashamed of it. And you know what? That's not what God intended. First command in Scripture, the very first one, is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Clearly God's okay with this in marriage. Let's stop pretending like he's not. But to make a joke of that which is important is to lessen its value in our own minds and leads to that life of sensuality. It leads to the hardened heart. It leads to the callousness. And so if we consistently accept this kind of humor into our lives, guess what? We've trained our mind not to worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's okay. And Satan is slick. He knows how to sneak this stuff in. He knows how to convince us of it. He knows that he doesn't have to do it in one moment. It's just a repeated dripping. I just keep going and we just keep going and I keep pushing a little further, a little further. Just get them to accept it as a joke. Get them to, then I can take a step another generation later into, oh no, this is, this is who we are. No, it's not who you are. It's who Satan has told you you are. It's the lie. And so one of the things we've got to learn to do is monitor our speech and the speech that we engage in. Okay, in, in, in Psalm 1914, listen, it says, let the words of my mouth, I know, how many of y'all know this? You can say it with me. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is a prayer that they're, they're saying, I get it. Let the things in my heart and, and, and the things that I say be right and good. Now, how do we do that? Most of the time, we don't really know this psalm right here, Psalm 1914, is the conclusion of him telling us how we do this. Okay, so listen to the, the other part of the psalm in 7 through 13. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous means those that I'm doing on purpose. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. None of us falls into this by accident. It is intentional every time, whether we knew it or not. But you know where the intentionality started? In the crude joking, in the filthiness, in the, the impure talk. It started back here where we thought, no, it's not that big a deal. That's where it was intentional. We didn't understand Satan's plan and how cunning he is to make it a bigger problem. And with this, there is a warning. Okay, Paul, like I said, he starts off with be imitators of God, and he finishes with the fact that God will not be mocked. God is not fooled by this. He knows. He knows when we've intentionally chosen it. He knows when, when those presumptuous sins have, have ruled over us. He knows when our faith isn't real and we're just faking it. He knows. And so that's why Paul says in verse 5, he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. What is coveting? If we live a life of covetousness, it means that we are unsatisfied with the grace and the love that God has given us, which shows that we are clearly out of step with God. If we have a life of coveting everything around us, we think that something in the world is going to fulfill us, which clearly means we're not believing in God. So that's why he says, if this is who you are, he says, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The truth of the matter is this. We cannot serve two masters. Whether it's money in God or whether it's self in God, we cannot serve two masters. We will serve one and despise the other is what Jesus says. And if we do not despise the immorality of our world, and we embrace it, then we are despising God. Because the immorality of our world is not God withholding something from us. It is him protecting us. And it's us telling him, I don't like your created order. I don't like how you did things. I want something other than what you have foreordained. And what you created and called good, I don't want it. I want something else. Well, that's not a heart that's in line with the God and believes Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And Ephesus was a very immoral city. Temptations abounded in this city at this time. All the temples that were there, the immorality was off the chart. I can't tell you how our world right now 
that we live in, if we were to go back in time and walk the streets of Ephesus at certain times of the year, we would be amazed that anybody could practice Christianity successfully there. And you know what? They did, and they were a powerful church. You know why? Because they made the choice. I reject that, and I accept God's will. And I will deny myself completely. And so I just want us to ask here, very quickly, to finish out. What are you feeding in your life? What is your mirror? What are you looking at and copying? Because in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It's either or on this one, folks. There, there is no in-between here. Can people slip and fall along the way? Yes. But you know what? That's why people are like, man, that's so out of character. And the person is like, what did I do? What? I mean, you, you see the repentance. You see the, 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 the shock and, and the sadness. And you see the willingness to repent and fix things and go back. And like, okay, I, that was my bad. That was my fall. That was my mistake. Do we see that in our world right now? No. We see them recruiting people to it. Hey, join us in this. That's what he's talking about. And those who sow to the flesh will reap corruption and death. This is a promise. This is God telling us, Paul told us, these are the things that the wrath of God is coming upon, and we got to believe God in that end as well. And part of imitating God is doing the things he told us to do. And at the Last Supper, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so there are things that we just do. We do it because we're honoring him, we're imitating him, and we want it, his ways to be a part of our lives. And so at the Last Supper, at the Passover meal, he took the bread and he said, this bread is my body which shall be broken for you. And after he took the bread, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new covenant which shall be given for you. And after they'd eat, after they ate and they drank, he said, do this in remembrance of me. So today we remember that Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross and that he is coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. So together we eat of the bread. And together... We drink of the cup. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this day you've given us and the time, God, that we have had to, to look into your word, to hear your truth. And God, I pray that you help us, Lord, to examine the influences in our lives. God, what are we allowing in? We, we don't want to become legalistic or self-righteous or, or paranoid, but God, do we consume more of you than we do of the world? Do we intentionally put before ourselves things that are excellent, that are pure, that are holy, that are good, that are praiseworthy, the things that we are to think upon? Do we meditate upon your word or do we meditate upon the things of the world? God, help us to deny ourselves. Convict us, Holy Spirit. 
show us where we may be quenching your movements, Holy Spirit, your words. Make us sensitive again to your call. Increase our sensitivity to your call, to your voice, as we submit ourselves to you. God, be with each person as we leave this place today and use us for your kingdom this week. That we would be an example of grace and forgiveness. That we would be the kind of person that other people would want to imitate because we are imitating you. That we would be like Paul. That people would see that which is, is praiseworthy of God within us. God, help us to turn from the darkness, to recognize it for what it is, and to imitate you as dearly loved children. Help us to lead a life of love rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his holy name we pray together. Amen.